welcome back to Galatians chapter 2, the second study of the book of Galatians that we're doing in this podcast. I'm currently recording this episode and looking at the beginning of chapter 2, and it's kind of difficult to really say much about it, but what's going on here to my knowledge is Paul's going to talk about how he was entrusted to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and that the Jews and the Greeks, again, there's no partiality. Uh, they both can receive this salvation. And Paul's going to mention about a little bit about the circumcision and the uncircumcision party, how some people in the church were coming in and saying that circumcision was, well, still essential for salvation, circumcision that is of the physical flesh. But Paul is going to talk a little bit about that here, but later on we'll see in the book where he expands on it, where he reminds the church that we're saved by uh, faith, not necessarily the perfect obedience to the law such as circumcision. But again, Paul just briefly touches on it here, and it's kind of a precursor for what we'll see later on in this chapter, and I believe into chapter 3 as well. So in chapter 2 of Galatians, uh, verse 1, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. Or had not run in vain. We see here, if you remember from the first study, Paul is reminding the church that he is an apostle, he is who he says he is, and he truly had an encounter with the Christ. Continuing on in verse 3, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, again, what's going on is this is a common problem we see in the early church when Uh, the Jewish believers or even non-believers, Paul said uh, false brothers who uh, secretly were brought in to spy us out. We see that there were Jews that came in to spy out the Christians and even cause divisions such as bringing up circumcision because, well, ultimately I feel like they were jealous of the freedom that we have in Christ and so they were trying to hinder us saying, hey, if you truly want to follow the God of Israel, you need to obey the law. And so they were really distorting the gospel and confusing the Greeks and probably even the Jewish believers because they want to believe in Christ. But then they're like, well, do we believe in Christ and get circumcised still and follow the law and so on? But Paul will remind us in the late, uh, later on in the letter uh, well, truly what the gospel is all about, uh, faith, not necessarily just obedience to the law. Continuing on in verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, we see, remember, in the early book, in the early church, in the book of Acts, that Peter was really the one that was uh, first to... Uh, preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost. The first part of the book of Acts, I like to think, was really a lot about Peter. 
And as you go into the later parts of Acts, we see it's about uh, Peter sharing the word with the Gentiles, and then Paul goes on, and his ministry is really with the Gentiles. Though he always goes to the synagogue first, starts with the Jews, then the God-fearing Gentiles, and so on. And so Paul's reminding us that, hey, just as Peter, as we look up to as the apostle that really was entrusted with the gospel to the Jews, likewise, I am the apostle that is entrusted to bring the gospel to you guys. In verse 8, for he uh, who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Again, he's reminding everybody that, yes, Christ is working through Peter to uh, preach the gospel, but yet, likewise, he's also working through Paul to preach the gospel to you guys. So again, Paul is reminding us that he is who he says he is, and this gospel is the truth. In verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So again, as Paul talked about earlier, he used to persecute the church, but then he responded to the gospel and was saved, and the Gentiles accepted him into the fellowship. Uh, excuse me, the apostles accepted him into the fellowship uh, and he was also, again, added to their number as an apostle. So we see that uh, Paul is who he says he is. Christ is working through him. Even the apostles agree and are on board with this. So Paul is really reassuring the church in Galatia that, again, he is who he says he is. And his word has weight in regards to bringing the gospel to them. But there's a very interesting part that we're going to read uh, in verses 11 through 14, if you have a subheader on your Bible, it might say, Paul opposes Peter. Now, this might seem like a very, I don't know, random section of scripture, but it's very, it's a very good reminder that although Peter was like, we think of him as like the, the apostle, like the guy, especially if you're listening to this and you're Catholic, Peter is like the man to you. But, here we're reminded that although Peter was, I guess, an apostle and a darn good one, might I say, he's often mentioned as one that makes a lot of mistakes. And I'm not trying to mock Peter by any means. He was an apostle. God didn't make mistakes. He chose the right guy for the right job. But we see in scripture where Peter tries to walk on water and he falls in or he denies Christ or here we see why Paul opposes him. And it reminds us that even the apostles still made mistakes and stumbled with sin. And it's a good reminder that, hey, you know, even they messed up and struggled. And so it's normal that we do too. Um, but it's also a good reminder too that a lot of people in regards to like Catholicism, they believe that, again, Peter's like the one that holds the keys to heaven. But we see here that even Peter makes mistakes and Paul opposed him. If Peter was necessarily this first pope, if papacy was even a thing at this time, uh, Paul would not oppose him because if what he says is like the official word, he holds the keys, Paul would have been smart enough to be respectful. And I mean, Paul was respectful, don't get me wrong, but I guess it just reminds us that if Peter really was this amazing pope who had the keys to heaven and so on, Paul probably wouldn't have opposed him here, neither would Peter need to be opposed. And so in that regards to Peter having the keys to heaven, in that section, Christ is addressing all the apostles and the church, saying that the apostles, what they share, who they share the word to, and how the church grows, 
what the church ultimately binds on earth will be brought into heaven. The church is the saving vessel of Jesus Christ, not necessarily a specific Peter who leaves it to his descendant and their descendant and so on down this line of papacies. You know, I could get into this whole theology thing, but let's just stick to the latter because, again, I'm going to get down the rabbit hole in all of this. Ultimately, what I'm trying to say is Peter's a man like you and I. He makes mistakes. Paul calls him out with love. And ultimately, Peter, again, repents and everything's good. (laughs) So let's start in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Right here is a good reminder that our sin still is very important. You know, a lot of times we think, you know, I'm saved and that's great. And that is great and that's true. But here it says he stood condemned, meaning that what Peter was doing really, really was not good. And he truly, genuinely needed to repent. In verse 12, for before certain men came from uh, came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see, Peter, can you really blame him, though? He was a Jew that was always taught not to eat with Gentiles and sinners. And now that he's free in Christ, here he is eating with Gentiles. And then his Jewish brothers walk in and Peter was still ashamed. And I, I like to relate it to this. Imagine in, like, the civil rights movement where, you know, if you were white, you might have been taught not to associate with uh, your black man. And uh, then the civil rights movement happened and people are in that awkward transition where they're trying to develop those proper skills of treating people equally with love and respect. Well, I feel like Peter's in the middle of that where he truly wants to treat the Gentiles with love and respect, but he still has that, uh, dare I say, hidden prejudice in his heart that he was brought up on and so he's in this position where he's really trying to not be prejudiced but he just has that subconsciousness so you know you can't really blame him in that sense what he was doing was absolutely wrong and Paul states that and he needs to repent but I guess what I'm trying to say is we can relate really because we all have hidden prejudice in our heart and this was really Peter's this was his struggle And let's continue on in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Right here, I guess to say it simply, Paul is stating, practice what you preach. You know, if you're going to be a Jew but live like a Gentile, Don't expect the Gentiles to live like Jews, meaning, well, I like to think of it this way. If you tell me not to do a specific sin, but then you go out and do that sin, your word doesn't really have much weight in that regard. To put it in practical terms, if I said, don't cheat on your wives, and then I went out and cheated on mine, that would not really have much weight. It would be hypocritical and you guys would not want to listen and it would just lead people astray and cause divisions. So when you preach the gospel or do anything as a Christian, even if you're not preaching, you just got to make sure you practice what you preach. Be merciful to others and don't have unreasonable expectations of others when you yourself can't reach those expectations or perhaps willingly don't exceed those expectations. 
So that's what Paul's reminding Peter is, you know, practice what you preach, treat everybody with love and respect in the gospel, in the church, because there's no partiality. You got to work through this prejudice. So continuing on in verse 15 through the rest of the chapter, again, if you have a subheader, it might say justified by faith. Now, this section is very important leading into chapter 3. As we mentioned earlier, the circumcision and the uncircumcision party, those that believe we are justified by the faith or those that believe we're justified by faith and obedience to the law. Paul's going to really get into this discussion here, but let's start in verse 15. Read the rest of the chapter's precursor into the whole discussion in chapter 3. Verse 15, we ourselves, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I really think of uh, when the rich young ruler in Luke, uh, I don't know the chapter on the top of my head, forgive me, but the rich young ruler approaches Christ and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He then tells Christ, you know, I've kept the commandments since I was young. And Christ says, that's cool, but what you lack is to sell your possessions and follow me. So what's going on there? Well, what happens is at the top of that chapter, the rich young ruler asks Christ, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't really do anything to receive an inheritance. For example, if you've listened to past episodes, you know I have a young baby. If something were to happen right now to me that I died, uh, he would receive uh, an inheritance. He would get what I have now. And it's not because he's really done anything. He's simply a baby. He would receive this inheritance not because he obeys me perfectly or has this perfect obedience to all my rules. I mean, again, he's a baby. He really can't do anything else outside of what I can help him do. But he would receive an inheritance simply because he has a relationship to me. He's my son. And likewise, when the rich young ruler says, you know, I've kept the commandments, and Christ says, well, you need to sell everything and follow me. Christ isn't stating that those that are wealthy and well-off can't follow or can't be saved. He's stating that no matter what your wealth is or your obedience, the only thing that's really going to save you is your relationship with me, you following me. And so likewise, if you want to inherit eternal life, is it going to be by your perfect obedience to the commandments? Well, nobody can keep the commandments perfectly. If you do so much as one little sin in your life, you've already failed. So the only way you're going to be saved is by your relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul is reminding us that, that it's, it's by faith. And again, we're going to elaborate on that, continuing on in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What Paul is stating here is, we're justified in Christ, and because of that, we should, you know, live godly lives and truly follow Christ. We shouldn't utilize this grace and mercy as an excuse to indulge in sin now that we've been forgiven and freed. And Paul is really stating what John states in his first epistle, stating that, look, Christ came here to deal with the works of Satan, to to abolish the works of Satan, to not only die for the forgiveness of sin, but to stop sin and so yes we've been forgiven but christ didn't give us that forgiveness so we can 
just go out and party and sin. Remember, he came here to stop the works of Satan, not excuse them. I think it's oftenly common, even in the first century, because Paul writes about this a lot, that now that we've been forgiven, should we go on sinning? Certainly not. We hear that a lot in Paul's writing. Because I think throughout all the generations of Christians, it's common for us to think, hey, you know, now that I'm forgiven, I can sin. Or we think, this is kind of our ticket out. I don't have to go to hell anymore, and I can still mess up. But yeah, that's true. We've been forgiven when we do mess up, but we truly still need to treat our sin, and I guess treat it wisely, meaning we need to really approach it and try our best to repent and turn from our sins. And Paul reminds us that this isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card in the sense that you can go on and continue sinning. It's a, merciful, it's a merciful, loving gift that, yes, you're forgiven and you've been bought with a price. So our allegiance isn't to sin anymore. It's really to Christ. He paid our debt, and so likewise we should devote our lives to Him, not, hey, you paid our debt, now I'm going to continue to go back to my vomit. As Paul writes, as a dog, we shouldn't return to our vomit. And that's what he says in verse 18 about rebuilding what he tore down. You know, the sin's been dealt with, but we shouldn't rebuild those past habits. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. So what's going on is, well, before the law came, there was, I mean, we were still sinners, but the law came and really told us what sin was, meaning when the law said, you shall not covet, Paul knew, okay, now I know that what coveting is and that I know it's a sin. And so what Paul is stating here is that when the law came, we died through the law, meaning the law is righteous and good, and it exposed our sin. And because it exposed our sin, that's why we need Jesus Christ. So it exposes our sin so we might live to God and in Christ Jesus. Continuing in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I, uh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So that right there is pretty much a one-verse explanation of the gospel. Paul stating that we're not really saved by the works of the law because, well, our sins were crucified with Christ. And now that we have the Holy Spirit, it's really Christ that lives with us, lives within us. Because, well, yes, Christ died for us so our sins could be forgiven. But even then, that doesn't mean that we could just go on and be perfect now. Christ had to pay our debt for our sins, and now he really has to live our lives for us, in us, so we can really live a God-pleasing life. And that's why we're given the Holy Spirit, is because, well, we really suck when it comes to uh, obeying God and loving God. And so really Christ has to do it for us. We see that Christ was baptized in the gospel letters, showing that even he had to repent for us. And we see that Christ was crucified. He had to pay our debt for us. And now we see that he was resurrected and his spirit lives within us because ultimately we can't do anything outside of God. We need his help in all things. And that's why his spirit dwells in us to help us. So it's Christ that lives within us. Uh, verse and he gave himself for us but in verse 21 I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose again you know a lot of people out in the Christian world and well out in the world in general whether you're a Christian a non-Christian or whatever it may be you believe 
It's a common misconception that people look at Christianity as a whole and heaven and think, well, you lived your life as long as you made some good choices and as long as you didn't murder anyone, uh, you're going to heaven. But if you do something bad, such as murder or pedophilia, you're going to hell. It's a, that's a, a massive commonly used misconception in the secular world. People look at us like, oh, the only way to get to heaven is to be a good person. There are even people that don't believe in, well, they're not really Christian, but when a loved one dies, they think, oh, they were such a good person, they're going to heaven. But Paul is reminding us that people don't go to heaven based on being a good person or based on the fact that they had more good deeds than bad deeds. The only way you're getting to heaven is because Christ died on the cross for you and was resurrected. Jesus paid the debt for our sins. The thing is, if you accept Jesus Christ and that free gift, you're going to heaven because of the work Christ did. But if you deny that, then you're going to hell based on the fact that you aren't, based on the fact that your sins were paid for by Christ and you willingly rejected it. And so you're telling God that, eh, Christ's sacrifice wasn't really good enough for me, so I'll get into heaven based on my own deeds, which is entirely false because it only takes one sin to be uh, damned. And so Christ is stating that it's not, or excuse me, Paul is stating that it's not your deeds that are going to get you into heaven. It's simply your acceptance of Jesus Christ. And so he's stating that if you devote your life to perfect obedience to the law without faith in Christ, it's just a waste of time and effort. You're going to be exhausted and you ultimately won't please God. The only way you're getting into heaven is your relationship with Jesus. Now, your sins obviously are an important aspect to the faith, to say the least. I mean, it's mentioned everywhere in scripture. That's kind of the whole reason all this is going on. But Paul writes, or excuse me, John writes in his first epistle that Christ died for uh, our sins and not of our sins only, but of the whole world. I heard a preacher say one thing one time, and I'm not necessarily sure if this is 100% accurate theology, so forgive me, but it really stuck with me. He stated, you know, since Christ died for everyone's sins, including ours and the whole world, when you get to Judgment Day, you're not going to go to hell based on the fact of your sin. You're going to go to hell based on your rejection of Jesus. Because since Christ paid the debt for your sin, you don't have to go to hell for your sin. But if you reject that gift, then, well, that there's going to be condemnation for you. And so your condemnation, yes, it's because, you know, you're in sin, but... It's mostly because you rejected the free gift of grace uh, in Christ. A great example of this is also Mark 16, 16. It says, believe and be baptized and you'll be saved. But the last part of the verse says, believe not and you'll be condemned. It doesn't say sin and you'll be condemned, which again, scripture does say that in other places. But this verse says, believe not and you'll be condemned. So ultimately what Christ is stating is, I paid for your sins. I paid the debt for your sins. If you accept it, you'll be saved. If you don't, you're going to be condemned because I paid the debt. There is no excuse for you to go to hell now and experience condemnation. And if you wind up there, it's because you rejected me. I love you and I paid this for you. And if you reject it, that's on you. That's on you and I. And so I'm going to stop right here and we'll pick up in the next study in chapter 3, Lord willing. Um, but again, this was a good precursor into what's going on in chapter 3 where Paul's going to elaborate how we're justified by our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not based on our own good deeds, because simply we don't really have that many good deeds to get us into heaven. I mean, 
you can have so many good deeds, but we all still sin, let's be real. And so that's why we need Jesus Christ. We need a savior. If you're gonna get into heaven based on your own deeds, you are entirely wrong. And that is why we need to share the good news of Jesus because every time you see on Facebook where someone's loved one dies and they say, oh, you're saving me a seat in heaven. They're saying that because you know it comforts them, but really we need to share the gospel with those people so they can truly understand how to get there. It's not gonna be based on you being a sincere good person. It's gonna be the fact that well, Jesus already paid for the debt for you. Have you accepted that good news? Or really, are you still putting your salvation in your own hands, which is sadly a feeble effort? Thank you for listening to the podcast. I encourage you to please share this, and you can always email me anything I may have missed. Again, I'm sure there's plenty that I could have said differently. So please email me at churchofchrist.bible.podcast at gmail.com and let me know. You can tell me if there's things I missed, or you could simply comment on the podcast and let me know things I can grow on and do differently. Thank you again for listening. I, I really appreciate all of you.